You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Hey guys, if you will turn um, to, with me to John 2, 1 through 11, um, this is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Hey, welcome to RUF. My name is Matt. I'm the campus minister here, and uh, glad that you guys are here. We have been uh, work, working our way through the Gospel of John, or at least... We just started that last week, so we're, we're, we're going to be working our way through the Gospel of John. And we're looking at specifically the passages in Scripture, in this particular book, where Jesus has personal one-on-one interactions with people. And our hope is, really, wherever you find yourself spiritually, believing, unbelieving, don't really know what you believe, that if you stick with us this semester, maybe you'll get a more fully orbed sense of who Jesus actually is and how the scriptures present him. And so to set up what I want to talk about tonight, I wanted to tell you, um, well, never mind. No, I, I was going to say I wanted to tell you about my honeymoon, but then I realized that sounded really weird to start that way. So I'm going to tell you about a, a portion of my honeymoon. After we got married... Um, <laughs> Catherine and I did our honeymoon in, like, Northern California, like, wine country area. And we were super excited about this. Uh, neither one of us were really, like, into wine tasting. Um, but it was, we, we were pretty excited to do it. If you've ever been to, like, a wine tasting thing, it can be a little, it can be a little pretentious at times. Because what happens is they pour you a glass, of, you know, a little taste of wine, and you're supposed to smell it first. Like you're supposed to, that's the, the, what they call the nose of the wine. You're supposed to you know, sample the nose of the wine. And then after you smell it, you're supposed to swirl it around and pay attention to how the wine kind of trickles back down to the bottom. Those are the tears, the legs of the wine. And there's all this pressure because the guy behind the counter is watching you the whole time. And as you take your sip, there's this like pressure to you know, have some sort of response. And you sip it, and he's like, hey, did you... Did you catch those black currants kind of in the back there? And Catherine and I are like, yes, definitely. And he's like, I don't know if you caught that kind of like those balanced espresso notes kind of right on the front when you took it in. 
We're like, yeah, definitely. And, and Catherine and I would kind of begin to kind of understand the language. After a while, we'd be like, you know, and also had kind of a bit of a nutty, oaky finish. And he's like, so glad that you caught that. And uh, <laughs> so we just lie our way through the whole week, and it was so fun. But about day three, day four of our honeymoon, we both got really sick, like cough, snot, headache, sore throat, just feeling awful. But we're like, we're in wine country. We got to keep going. So we got some like vitamin C. We got like a little, that little silver tin can of sucrets, you know, just like throat lozenges. We're going to lozenge this up and we're just going to keep going. Because there was this one winery we were super excited about called Opus One. And this place has like world-renowned, crazy expensive, fancy pants wine. And as we drive up to it, we're driving through this kind of field and Opus One like appears out of nowhere. It's this giant compound. It feels like it's almost like an Egyptian pyramid. And you kind of see this thing and you're like, that's something. And so when you, when you go into this place, it's $25 for like a sample of some of their wine. And so we're like, hey, when in Rome, let's do it. So they pour it. They're kind of standing behind the counter like waiting to see what our reaction is going to be. And they're, they're talking about how it's you know, very fruit forward and this one has very earthy varietals to it. And we taste it and we're like, it tastes like artificial cherry and menthol. Because we had been sucking on sucrets all day long. So all we were tasting was cherry, like menthol minty cherry flavor. So here's this amazing, expensive, super fancy, top shelf wine. And it was kind of like, meh. And the reason I bring that up is because I'm guessing that you can identify with that feeling of here's something that I've been so looking forward to. This is going to be awesome. And then you get it. You're like, meh. For some of you, that was your experience at UT or that will be your experience at UT. You're so excited about coming to school. You're not in high school anymore. You, you got your, your, uh, your dorm room decorated. You got your, your shower caddy all outfitted with your shampoos and whatever that you do and uh, you're just excited to be here and then you're here for a while and parking sucks and the vols are so frustrating to watch and uh, you, you know the construction's everywhere you begin to experience what some people refer to as the big orange screw and um, some of you entered a sophomore slump, which is a real thing. And so you're like, this is going to be awesome. And then you get here and you're kind of like, eh. Or for some of you, this was your experience with you know, your fraternity or your sorority. Like you, you were hunting around and you found the house. And you're like, this is awesome. These are my people. And you blow up everybody's Instagram feed. And then you're there for a while. And by about your junior year-ish, for some of you, you'll be like, uh, I don't really have time for this anymore. Like... Uh, the homecoming duties and the, like all the responsibility, the chapter meetings, like I don't have time for this. I already kind of have my friend group. It's too expensive. And so a lot of people about their junior years start to kind of drop out because we're thinking this is going to be awesome. It's kind of meh. And, and the reason I bring all this up is because this story, I think fundamentally speaks into that issue inside of every one of our hearts that longs for joy and meaning and belonging and satisfaction, and then always it feels like it's slipping through our fingers, and it's kind of like, eh, didn't quite do what I wanted it to do. And this story speaks to that, and it's interesting. If you look at verse 11 on your, on your handout, um, this refer, John refers to this story, which is a famous story. It's, it's, a, uh, it's Jesus turning water into wine, 
right? I mean, a lot of people have heard of this story. You're kind of like, okay, what's the big deal with this? It feels just like kind of a cool magic trick. But in verse 11, John refers to this as the first of his signs. And the word first there doesn't just mean chronologically it came in the beginning before all the others. That word first, let's geek out for one second. The Greek word for first is the word arche, which we get the word archetype from. So this is saying this story, this miracle, this sign is like the quintessential archetypal uh, summary statement of who Jesus is and what he is all about. This is like the thesis statement. You know, you write a little paper, and in the opening paragraph, you have the thesis statement that tells you, here's what the rest of the paper is about. Or you have your little Instagram, one-sentence little bio thing. That is what you want to tell the world. This is kind of who I am in a nutshell. Summary. This story is that for Jesus. This is who Jesus is, what he is about. And what I want to look at this evening is how this story, how this kind of quintessential Jesus story tells us about that longing in our heart as well. So here's what I want to do. Let's get into the story and look at three things. Where Jesus shows up, what Jesus does, why Jesus does it. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Where he shows up, what he does, why he does it. Let's look at where he shows up. Look at verse uh, 1 and 2. It provides us with a little bit of the background of the story. Jesus is at a wedding with his disciples and his mom. And they're hanging out at this wedding. And some of you might know that weddings in Jesus' kind of cultural moment lasted up to a week. It's like five, six, seven-day nonstop blowout party where the entire village was invited. It was like a major, big social ordeal. Their wedding celebrations made Boxing Weekend look lame. I mean, they, they, they knew how to party so bad that there's an actual archite- architecture, not architectural, archaeological evidence of people in Jesus' day and age, um, Jewishes, Jesus' day and age, that, that literally sued each other if a wedding was cut short. Like if the whole the wedding was shorter than a week, there's like actual records of people suing each other if their party was bad. Like y'all think y'all know how to party because you're college students. Like people in Jesus' day, they sued you if your party sucked. So like they knew how to party. And here Jesus is at this wedding, and look at verse three, this problem is set up. Jesus' madre approaches him and lets him know that the wine is out. And like this party is about to be shut down prematurely. And like I said a second ago, this doesn't mean that this is just like a social, uh, you know, this is like a, a faux pas. This is like a party foul. This is like a big deal. This couple is facing ex- like extreme social shame, uh, embarrassment, possible litigation. There's a big problem here. And what I want you to notice is um, here is a couple And they don't have what they need. They need wine. They don't have it. And as a result, life is spinning out of control for them. And I want to pause for a second and just see if you can identify with that feeling. That feeling of, I don't have what I need. And as a result, life feels like it's spinning out of control. For me, today, this day, it felt like my story today was, I don't have the time that I need. And so today felt crazy and out of control. For you, you might look at yourself every single day and say, I don't have the body that I need. Or you would say, I don't have the grades that I need. 
You get here and you're like, I don't have the friends that I need. I don't have the family that I need. I don't have the respect from people that I need. I don't have the relationship from people that I need. This story is, 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 I think, inviting us to get in touch with that need in us, that emptiness in us, that sense of deficit, that sense that there is something about me that is lacking, that's inadequate, where I really feel like I'm not enough. And what I want you to notice is where Jesus shows up. Because Jesus shows up right in the middle of a story that is dominated with need and emptiness. That's where Jesus is. And I want you to ask yourself the question, is that where I think Jesus actually shows up and wants to connect with me, is in the needy, empty places of my life? Because if you're, any, I mean, if you're anything like me, I was thinking about this. I'm, I'm 36 years old, and when I blow it, or when I get in touch with unmet, like deep unmet longings and desires in me, my knee-jerk reaction is to picture Jesus from a distance looking at me with some level of disappointment and saying, like, you haven't figured this out yet? Like, you're 36 and you're still struggling with this? And it's the sense that he's, he's, he's a part, he's not angry, but it's a sense of, I should know better. But what, you want, what I want you to see just from the opening of the story is that Jesus meets us. He shows up in the places of our need, of our emptiness, of our hurt, of our longings. Is that where you expected Jesus to meet with you? That he wants to actually meet with you in those places? You break up with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, and you feel that void. Do you think that Jesus wants to meet with you there in that place? Or you get to campus and you're like, I am so lonely, but I cannot let anybody know how lonely I really am. Do you think that in that need, that emptiness, that loneliness, Jesus wants to meet with you there? Or do you think just Jesus is angry at you that you're not excited? Or disappointed in you that you're not just like pumped up all the time? This story is showing you the good news that Jesus actually shows up in the places of need and of emptiness and of deficit in you. And that is really good news. But it's not just that he shows up in the empty spaces. Look at what he does secondly. Look at what he does when he shows up in those places. And here here it is kind of in a nutshell. Here's what he does. He keeps the party going. Here's this party that's about, here's this party that's dying. And not only does he save a bad party, he actually makes it better. Look at at the story. Look at verse 6. This is amazing to me. Jesus has the servants fill up. There's like these six stone jars that says uh, each jar holds about 20 to 30 gallons of water. And he says, fill them up to the brim. So they fill up six jars, each with 20 to 30 gallons of water. So to be generous, that's 180 gallons of water. Like That's a lot of liquid. Think, Think about it with me for a second. I... I, I had my wife and you know help me do some math with this. I wanted to convert this number. What, what does 180 gallons look like? If you convert 180 gallons into liters, this would be 341 two liters. So imagine like you show up to your friends are watching The Bachelor and you show up with 341 <laughs> bottles of cheer wine. You're like, yeah, like that's a that's a lot of liquid. Or if you would even convert it again into bottles of wine. This makes 908 bottles of wine. So your friends are watching the game this weekend in the Ford, and you drive over there, and you're pulling a U-Haul, and the U-Haul 
is packed to the roof with cases of wine, and you're like, let's go! And your friends are like, you have a drinking problem. <laughs> but this, this is how much liquid Jesus makes. And, and here, here, here's what I want you to, uh, here's what, you know, like, what do we make of this? Here's what I make of this. This is over-the-top abundance. This, this is over, like, Jesus really wants to celebrate, apparently. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know, but maybe this is one of the reasons why the religious community thought that he was an alcoholic. I mean, you know this, right? There's, there's a passage in Scripture where it says that how the conservative traditional religious community in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, refers to him as a, quote, drunkard and a glutton. His reputation with the conservative traditional religious community is that he was wild. He went to parties. He probably drank at parties. And he developed a weird reputation as a result of it. But here's the thing. It, what's crazy is just not the amount of wine that Jesus makes, it's the quality of it as well. Look at verse uh, 9 and 10. The master of the feast, who's kind of like this wedding coordinator, he tastes this wine and he is like, O-M goodness, this is amazing. You saved the best wine for last, which totally went against the grain of how people did it back then. They would usually serve the really good stuff first, and then once everybody kind of got a little, you know, everybody getting a little tipsy at the club, they would pull back the good stuff and save it because it was expensive, and then they would bust out the garbage stuff because at that point people didn't care what they were drinking. But Jesus busts out the good stuff at the end. He's not making two-buck chuck and natty light. Like, he is doing top-shelf, high-end, expensive, fancy, Opus One, like, legit wine. Now, I want you to think about that for a second um, because I realize, you know, all of this alcohol talk is, you know, I know it makes some of you uncomfortable. And I want to be sensitive to that because, I mean, this is, I, I, I think this is actually alcohol. Some Christians have come along and tried to argue it's just he's making a bunch of grape juice. And I'd love to sit down and have coffee with you, and I'll show you in the Greek. We can get nerdy, and I'll show you that it's, no, it's actually alcohol. But I don't, want you to, I don't want you to miss the point of this story because you're hung up on, like, the alcohol thing. If you look through the Bible, all throughout the Bible, wine is this big symbol, the symbol for salvation and joy and festivity and celebration, and if you step back and look at the story, here is this need, here is this emptiness, here is this moment of deficit. And what does Jesus do with that emptiness? He fills it with over-the-top, generous, lavish, festive abundance. That's what he does. Jesus is saying, I am the life of the party. I am the source of all joy. And I want you to think about that for a second because... Most college students don't believe that, even people that consider themselves Christians. The way that I think most people think when they get to UT is they say, okay, I'm at college now, and so for the next four years, I want to do the college thing, which means I just really want to enjoy everything that UT has to offer me. There's so much exploration and fun and parties and people. And then you think, okay, the way to maximize joy at UT 
is to get Jesus out of the way. Just shelve him for a little bit. I'm not going to delete him. I'm just going to kind of put him on the back burner because deep down we think he's going to get in the way of the fun. He's going to get in the way of the joy. Because I think if we were to read the story the way that we really think about Jesus, the way that we would rewrite this story is, okay, here's this big party with all this booze and the booze runs out. And Jesus says, okay, great. Fill that up with Diet Coke. And y'all settle down and sober up and shut up and let's get in a big awkward circle and let's pray together out loud, everybody now. <laughs> and you're like, I mean, that's how you think, that's what you think Jesus would do in this story. He makes things awkward and weird and cheesy. And so I think most college students really do think if I'm going to maximize my joy and my pleasure and my experience at UT, I got to get Jesus out of the way because he's going to, he's going to ruin my fun. And if that's you... If that's what you're thinking, I got, I got to shelve Jesus so I can really maximize joy here. I think this passage is shouting at you, you don't have a clue who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the life of the party. If you seek joy and experience and adventure apart from him, you will only experience loss, more emptiness. And my guess is some of you upperclassmen that are here tonight can relate to that story. Where you said, okay, yeah, that's exactly what I did. I came in my freshman year and I kind of put Jesus on the sidelines and I did the party crazy thing. And it just left me empty and bottomed out. And maybe the reason why you're back here in RUF tonight is because you think maybe Jesus has something else to offer you. Jesus is saying, I am the life of the party. He takes our emptiness and he fills it with over-the-top festive joy and celebration. But why does he do it? And that's the last thing I want to look at with you tonight. Why, why does he do this? Well, it's, it's fascinating. If you go back, uh, the first time you read verse 3 and 4, I think they sound really weird. Because Jesus' mom comes up to Jesus and she's like, hey, they ran out of wine. And here's his response. Woman? What does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't yet come. I mean, that, who talks to their mom like that? That sounds so rude. I mean, this would, this would be like, uh, th- th- not only is it, does it sound rude, it also sounds really bizarre. This is like you eating at Chipotle with your mom, and your mom's like, hey, do you mind passing the, you know, the, the, the hot sauce? And you're like, hey, woman, um, it's not my time yet. Like, that's weird. So what, what, what is going on here? Well, uh, in our culture, of course, to address a person as woman uh, is extremely offensive and chauvinistic, and it feels, you know, page, you know it just does, feels wrong. In Jesus' culture, it wasn't. In fact, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's another place in the Gospel of John where he addresses his mom as woman in John 19, 26. You can look it up. He's actually hanging from the cross and he addresses his mom about how he's going to take care of her financially after he dies. It was, it was actually a polite way to address your mom then. So he addresses his mom, but then he says uh, that his hour has not yet come. Which is really weird, because if you were just to read this story and didn't read the rest of the Gospel of John, you'd be like, I have no clue what he's talking about. But if you actually read the rest of the Gospel of John, every time Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about his death. I can send you all the different verses or do your own little verse study. How many, where does it say hour in the Gospel of John? It's going to show you all these different times where Jesus is talking about the hour of his death. So 
let's retranslate that little conversation. They're at this wedding. Wine is out. Mom comes up to Jesus. Hey, they ran out of wine. And Jesus says, Mom, it's not time for me to die yet. Now, that's still pretty weird. Because here they are at this wedding, and Jesus is distracted because he's thinking about his death. Like, we don't do that. We go to weddings, and what do we think about when we go to weddings? We think about our weddings, right? Anytime you're at somebody else's wedding, you're thinking, man, am I going to do it like this? Oh, I'm going to need to hire that band. Am I going to have the food not like this? I'm going to do my different food different. Like, any, like, as a pastor, I get to officiate a lot of y'all's weddings, which is so fun for me. And every time I'm at one of y'all's weddings, I, it always makes me think about my own, like, when we got married and... I think that's just what happens normally when you're at a wedding. You think about your wedding, not your death. And if you're at a wedding and you're thinking about your death, we should grab coffee and talk about it. (laughs) But for Jesus, um, these two realities are one and the same. His wedding and his death are the same. He knows if I'm going to have my bride, then I have to die for her. You know, the the symbol of wine has another really fascinating uh, symbolism and imagery throughout the Bible. It's actually uh, another metaphor for God's judgment and God's wrath and God's punishment against sin. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. You see this in the book of Revelation where it talks about God's going to make his enemies drink the entire cup of his wrath down to the bottom. And so it's really fascinating in the Gospel of Mark when he is right before he's about to go to the cross... He prays, maybe some of you will remember, he says, Father, take this cup from me. What cup is he talking about? He is talking about the cup of God's wrath that he knows he's about to go drink when he goes to the cross. What is happening at the cross is Jesus goes to the cross and he, in a spiritual sense, is drinking to the bottom the bitter cup of God's judgment against sin so that you could have the sweet cup of his blessing and salvation. He is taking your place at the cross, undergoing punishment in your place so that he could reclaim you as his own. You are his bride that he is dying for. This is why he does this. Because he loves you. The reason why it's a bride wedding metaphor is because it is one of romance and intimacy and love. He is thinking about you. He's thinking about the cross. He's thinking about his, what he has to do in order to win you, in order to win me. It is purely out of love. And this, this is why this is the kind of quintessential nutshell story of who Jesus is. He enters into our emptiness, into our need. He fills it with joy and festive abundance. And he does it because he loves us. Not because he wants anything from us, but because he just wants to give it to us as a gift. Now, we could end right here, and you would say, that's really sweet. What a fun story. But how do you, here's what what I want to ask. How do you connect into this? Like, for some of you that are kind of on the outside of Christianity, looking in and thinking, how do I I get into that? How do I hook into this reality of Jesus meets me in my longing and my emptiness, and he actually promises to fill me? How How do I get that? I want to look at one more interesting detail with the story, and then we'll finish. Look back at this groom one more time. In um, 
uh, in, in verse 9 and 10, it's really fascinating. Here is this stupid groom that's totally blown it. He's, he's made this huge mistake. He has nothing. He doesn't have what he needs. And pay attention. I'm going to read it. Pay attention to verse 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Did you notice what just happens? He is praising the groom for saving the good wine until the end. Here's this idiot groom that has done nothing. He's totally screwed up. He doesn't have what he needs. He's totally blown his own wedding to pieces. And now he is being honored as throwing the best party that the village has ever seen. He's taking all the credit for Jesus' work. And that is what it means to be a Christian in a nutshell. You ever ask yourself, what does it mean to be a Christian? Is it, uh, i got to read the Bible, i got to go to stuff like RUF, i got to do good things? No, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Fundamentally, what it means to be a Christian is that you are someone that doesn't have what you need, and yet you take all the credit for Jesus' work. Uh, this past June, I took my two kids to Dallas. This is where I grew up. My parents still live in Dallas, and my parents still have... All of my old, like a bunch of old stuff of mine, like in the garage, tucked away. And my, my dad wanted me to go through this, these boxes while we were there to try to get rid of some of this stuff. And he had a box of some of my old trophies when I was like a kid growing up. I was like, fine, I'll go through this stuff. I don't want any of this stuff, though. And so I'm going through it, and my daughter's okay, is with me while I'm kind of sorting out all these trophies. And as I'm kind of pulling them out, she's like, Dad, can I please have a trophy? I'm like, no, you do not, you, no, you're not going to have one of these trophies. She's like, please, I have always wanted a trophy. I've never gotten a trophy. Can I please have one? I was like, okay, sure. Like, you can pick one or two out of the box. I'm, uh, otherwise, I'm throwing the rest of the way. So, right now, as we speak, 12 minutes from campus, my daughter is asleep in her room with two of my childhood trophies on her little ledge. She has a, a baseball that was signed by the entire 1987 T-ball team. <laughs> and she has my 1987 soccer spirit award that is, you know, sitting on the ledge. She did nothing to earn these trophies. She did nothing to earn them. She's taking the credit for all of my work, all of my accomplishments. And that's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to say, I have done nothing. I can earn nothing from God. Uh, It is to admit fundamentally, I have nothing to offer God. And God says to you, okay, Jesus is going to take the blame for your life at the cross, and then he is going to give you the credit for his life. And so you get a party in the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity with wine that never runs out. And he gets judgment and torture on a cross. That's the switch. You get the credit for his work. That's the offer. And so what I want to invite you to tonight is just two things. Are you willing to admit, I do not have what I need. I am empty and I do not have what I need. And secondly, are you willing to take the credit for Jesus' work on your behalf? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. 
Are you willing to admit your need and are you willing to say, Jesus, what you have done, I want to take the credit for it. And God says, it's a gift, free of charge. It's an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would meet us in the places in our heart where we believe deep down that you can't fill us. The places in our heart where we feel so empty and we have just longings and desires that run a mile deep and so we look to anything to fill it. So Father, would you convince us maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time that Jesus is the source of joy, that he's the one that loves us, he's the one that can fill us, He is the one that has given himself for us. He is the one that promises to be with us and to sustain us till the end. And I pray that that would begin even now to to give us tastes and samples of what it means to be full and satisfied in you. Thank you for this night and for for this word and for this passage. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.